Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Updates on the Treatment of Estrogen Receptor, Progesterone Receptor, and HER2 Positive Breast Cancer from the 45th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And this is part two of Living with Breast Cancer. Um, and uh, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support for today's program. Now, we have wonderful uh, speakers on today's program. And we also have wonderful participants. We have over 250 participants on this call today. And you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Argentina, Canada, Egypt, Ghana, India, Iraq, Ireland, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call as well, and it's really um, a pleasure to have all of you on the call. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Kate Lathrop. And Dr. Lathrop is Associate Professor, Division Hematology and Oncology, UT Health San Antonio, Breast Medical Oncology, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, Assistant Dean of Undergraduate Research, Long School of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio, Program Director, Medical Oncology and Hematology Fellowship Program, UT Health San Antonio, and Program Director, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, SABCS. And Dr. Lathrop will be addressing updates from the 45th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium on Diagnostic Testing, Precision Medicine, Graded Hormone Receptors, What's New in the Treatment of, of ER, PR, and HER2-Positive Breast Cancer, and updates from SABCS on hormone and targeted therapy. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lathrop. Hi, thank you, Dr. Messner, and I appreciate being invited to talk about something that I obviously feel very passionate about, which is the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. So I'm going to go over a few of the abstracts that I think were really um, fundamentally impactful for patient care that were presented this year at the symposium. The first was a 12-year update of a very important clinical trial, which was called TaylorRx. And this trial looked at early-stage estrogen receptor positive breast cancer and how we can try to really tease out who benefits from chemotherapy in that setting. It was an extremely large trial with over 11,000 participants. And what this trial really focused on was a test which is called an oncotype. And that oncotype stratifies patients into lower risk and higher risk for recurrence, but also helps us know potentially what the benefit of giving chemotherapy to a patient with breast cancer would be. And we are pretty certain patients with low-risk scores did not need chemotherapy, and we're pretty certain that patients with higher scores did benefit from chemotherapy. 
But of course, like lots of things in medicine, there was a, a gray zone, an in-between or an intermediate risk group. And we really didn't know what to do with that group of patients. And so a lot of very brave patients went onto this trial and were randomized to either having endocrine therapy alone or endocrine therapy with a combination of chemotherapy. And that's the group that we're really focused on in this trial. And at SABCS this year, we saw the 12-year um, report from that trial. And 12 years is really important because hormone-sensitive breast cancer can recur quite late. It can recur easily within 10 years and sometimes even within that 12 to 13 year period. So watching these patients over a long period of time was very important. And what we found that was in that group of patients that had a recurrence score between 11 and 25 on their archetype, that all of the main markers we were looking for, everything from how long women lived without recurrence of their breast cancer, all the way to actually overall survival was the same whether women received chemotherapy with endocrine therapy or just received endocrine therapy alone. So what this means is that we can treat women in this intermediate group without giving them chemotherapy with the same risk of their cancers coming back. And that's important because obviously chemotherapy has a lot of toxicities. And we want to avoid those toxicities in patients that are not going to benefit. So that was an important trial to, to present the long-term follow-up for. So another trial that's similar but a little bit different was called the Monarch E trial. And again, this is in women who had still early stage hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer but were at higher risk for recurrence because they had some high-risk features. And by high-risk features, that could include multiple lymph nodes, so up to four positive lymph nodes, or a higher grade of tumor, and grade tends to um, give an increased risk of recurrence. So these women could have a grade three tumor or a tumor size that was large, so larger than five centimeters. And that would usually put these patients as a, a stage three breast cancer. And these patients were divided into two groups. One group received the standard of care, which is endocrine therapy, which was either with a group of medicines called aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen. And the other group also received endocrine therapy, but with the addition of a medication called abemaciplib. And abemaciplib is a type of medicine which is called a CDK46 inhibitor. And these are medicines that we've been using for women with metastatic disease for many years, and they're quite effective in that patient population. And this trial was really trying to look at if we can move that medicine earlier can we prevent women from developing metastatic cancer who are at particularly high risk because of the stage of their disease or the biology of their disease like a grade three tumor? And at SABCS this year, they presented a longer follow-up period. So previously we knew the results from about two years of follow-up, two to three years. And this trial was really looking once women had been on this medicine for more like four or five years. 
And what we saw was there, there was a difference between women having recurrence of their breast cancers at year two and three, but that difference was actually increasing the longer we watched these women. So they took the abimaciplib for two years, then they continued on the hormonal therapy for either five or 10 years, depending on the treatment plan by their physician. But as time went along, the differences between the two groups increased. And now with follow-up about four to five years, we're seeing an absolute difference in those groups of about 6%. So for women who received the additional treatment with abemacyplib, they had about an 86% chance of not having a recurrence of their breast cancer at four years versus women who only received hormonal therapy had about an 80% chance, so about a 6% difference. And obviously this group will be watched longer to see how that, that difference matures over a longer period of time, because as I stated before, it's important to watch these women for many years because their risk of recurrence continues. So it was, it was important to see that this confirmed an earlier result, but it also showed that that result was actually increasing over time. And this has become a standard therapy for women who have hormone receptor positive breast cancer that, at ho- that are at higher risk of having a recurrence. So now I'm going to move on actually to a group of patients with triple negative breast cancer. And now really most women with triple negative breast cancer are receiving chemotherapy prior to going to surgery. So women who have tumor sizes that are at least two centimeters or if their lymph nodes are involved, which is the majority of women presenting with triple negative breast cancer, those women are getting treatment before they go to surgery. And there's two reasons for that. One is it helps us do potentially smaller surgeries and less surgery in the axilla where the lymph nodes are, but also because we can formulate our therapy plan based on how women respond to our chemotherapy. And one of the open questions in the breast cancer community based on some clinical trials that have given us different answers is whether a group of medicines which are called platinums, which is a type of chemotherapy medicine, adds benefit to chemotherapy regimens for women with triple negative breast cancer. And so this trial looked at women who had triple negative breast cancer, and then they were put into two groups, one who received three medications that were chemotherapy, not including a platinum, and the other group was a combination of four chemotherapy medicines that did include a platinum, which was called carboplatinum. And then they went to surgery and got treatment based on uh, standard of care from their treating physicians. And they looked at a few things, and one was the chance that this tumor completely went away from the chemotherapy given before surgery. And we did see that women, particularly young women, less than age 50, they had a 20% difference in the pathologic complete response rate. So that means when they go to surgery, there's no viable tumor left. So women who received the platinum therapy had a 61% rate of a pathologic complete response versus about a 41% for patients who did not get chemotherapy, I mean, did not get the carboplatinum as part of their chemotherapy. 
However, we didn't see that change in women who were more than 50 years old. Those results were actually the same whether they received the carboplatinum or not. And this study also looked at how long women survived on the trial. And again, women who received the platinum therapy who were less than 50 years old had a higher chance of survival at about five years compared to women who did not receive the platinum therapy. Um, for women who were greater than 50, though, we didn't see a difference. And so this is a really important trial because, one, it supports giving this chemotherapy, this carboplatinum, in addition to the other chemotherapy regimens we use in triple negative breast cancer, particularly for women less than 50. And those women tend to be premenopausal. And we know the biology in a premenopausal woman for their breast cancer tends to be different than a postmenopausal woman. So adding carboplatinum certainly increases the toxicity of the regimen, particularly it increases the amount of neuropathy um, or damage to the nerves that can be caused by the chemotherapy. But more women had a complete pathologic response and that actually translated into a better chance of surviving their breast cancer. So it appears to be worth the added toxicities to add carboplatinum to these regimens for women with triple negative breast cancer. And so I think this is a really important confirmatory trial to help us know how to best treat these ladies. So there's a few other trials that I want to go over in the time that I have left. And one of them is called the Right Choice Trial. And this is really interesting because it's for women who have what we would consider really aggressive disease in the metastatic setting. So women with a lot of cancer affecting their organs like their lungs or their liver. And oftentimes we would treat these women with chemotherapy. And what this trial did was it looked to see if using a medicine called ribociplib, which is similar to a bimociplib that I already went over, with hormonal therapy, was as good as using chemotherapy in patients that have what's called visceral crisis or really rapidly progressing breast cancer. And what this trial showed is that actually if we use ribociplib in combination with hormonal therapy, that women did even better than if we use chemotherapy. They survived longer without their cancer growing if they received ribociplib than if they received the chemotherapy. The other important thing is that they have less side effects from the ribociplib. So the right choice trial helped us know that we can provide patients with a potentially less toxic and also oral version of therapy without, um, without impacting things like how long that they are on therapy without their cancer progressing. So that was a very important trial. And the last trial I want to go over is, the, is a trial called the Emerald Trial, which was a, a phase three large trial that looked at a new version of a medication, which is called a CERD. So this looked at a medication called a Lestrozent, which is an oral medicine. And it's given in women with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer who had already been on hormonal therapy and had already been on a medication that's a CDK4-6 inhibitor like ribociplib or abimaciplib. And what this was looking at is whether alestrozent was better than standard of care, which is things like fulvestrant or hormonal therapy. And the, um, 
primary endpoint on this is what we were looking at is whether women lived longer without their cancer progressing. And we found that this new medication is actually quite effective for women. So it's a great option because the other type of medicine that's similar to this is given as an intermuscular injection, which is quite uncomfortable. And it also works better for women who have a certain type of breast cancer, which is called an ESR1 mutated cancer. So we know for patients with that mutation in their cancer, they don't do as well on some of our standard of care therapies. So this new medicine actually was very effective in women who had an ESR1 mutation, even more effective than our standard therapies. And it was relatively well tolerated. It didn't have a lot of side effects. There was some nausea with it, and um, the discontinue rate was really low. It was only 1% in the study. So this is an important potential new therapy that we have for women with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer after they've progressed on a CDK4-6 inhibitor, which is a large population of our patients in that setting. And those are all the trials I wanted to go over. I know I'm a few minutes over, so sorry. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Lathrop. That was really um, a stellar presentation, just outstanding, and really set the tone for today's program in terms of covering really important um, trials that were presented at um, at San Antonio. And um, thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you very much. And our, our next speaker is Dr. Adrian Wax, and Dr. Wax is Associate Director of Clinical Research, Staff Physician, Breast Medical Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Wax will be addressing chemotherapy updates from SABCS, investigational new drugs and clinical trials, questions to ask your healthcare team, and what's new in the prevention and management of treatment side effects, discomfort, neuropathy, and long-term effects. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wax. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and thank you, everybody, um, for having me today. It's a great pleasure always to participate in these calls, so um, I enjoy it, and I hope you guys get useful information out of it as well. Um, so I wanted to focus, you know, I think that Dr. Lathorpe did a wonderful job of summarizing some of the really key um, updates in terms of treatments um, and new knowledge about uh, standard treatments that we know work. Um, which was, you know, very important results coming out of SABCS last month, I wanted to talk um, about really two other categories. One um, is sort of treatments that are in development that are a little bit earlier on, more investigational, as Dr. Messner said, but I think important and exciting to watch um, for our breast cancer patients as they make their way through development. Um, and then in the second category, talk a little bit about a trial that looked at prevention, breast cancer prevention, which is obviously a super important topic. Um, and then one that helped us think about um, women who want to get pregnant after a diagnosis of breast cancer, which is um, another really important issue that comes up for a subset of our patients. So first, um, talking about some of the in exciting investigational um, sort of newer treatments that I think were discussed at San Antonio this year. So the first one I wanted to talk about is a drug um, called camizestrant, and that's spelled C-A-M-I-Z-E-S-T-R-A-N-T, camizestrant. Um, that's a drug that's being developed um, for metastatic ER-positive breast cancers or estrogen-driven breast cancers. Um, and I wanted to start with this trial because I think that it um, it 
follows well from what Dr. Lathorpe was just talking about, the drug elasestrant um, that also had some data presented um, at San Antonio, again, in the population of women with metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. And both of these drugs, elasestrant and camisestrant, um, are drugs that fall into the class of or selective estrogen receptor degrader. So these are drugs that sort of antagonize estrogen. They have an anti-estrogen effect by chewing up, by degrading the estrogen receptor on breast cancer patients' cells um, so that the cancer cells can't use estrogen as a fuel anymore. Um, and this, in the, in the um, patient population of metastatic estrogen-driven breast cancer, this class of drugs, as Dr. Lathorpe said, has been really exciting. Um, it's been exciting for uh, our patients overall, and then also especially exciting since it really may outperform the standard therapies for patients who have a metastatic ER-positive breast cancer and have an ESR1 mutation, which is a mutation in the estrogen receptor itself. Um, and we've had, a, we've had a drug in this class already for many years called fulvestrant, um, but as Dr. Lathorpe said, uh, even though that's an effective drug, it has to be administered via injection, and so there's a lot of excitement about these newer drugs um, that can be taken orally, which we hope um, is a lot easier for our patients, and then in, in addition may work particularly well, um, again, for that subgroup of patients with ESR1 mutations. And so uh, in a little bit of an earlier trial, we saw presented at San Antonio a phase two trial that looked at this new drug, camisestrant, which is an oral um, third drug, and compared uh, in a randomized trial the camisestrant um, to the sort of standard older therapy, which is the fulvestrant drug. Um, and the results definitely looked exciting for these patients with metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. Um, the camisestrant did look better than the fulvestrant. Don't get me wrong, fulvestrant absolutely works in many of our patients too, but of course we always want to improve upon the current standards um, and find ways to improve our drugs so that they work for more patients. And it did look like the camisestrant um, was doing even even better than the fulvestrin. So that was just a phase two trial. So this drug will now have to be looked at or is being looked at in a phase three trial so that we can really understand um, you know, if it can replace um, and add, be added as an option to the current list of treatments we have for metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. Um, but the results were definitely exciting. So I think the camisestrin is an interesting drug to keep our eyes on in addition to the elasestrin that Dr. Lathorpe talked about. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll see that this new class of drugs makes a difference for our patients in terms of efficacy and is easier to take because you don't have to show up every four weeks for an injection. You can take them as a pill. Um, so that was the first trial I wanted to talk about. The second trial, um, which was a phase three trial, so this was a, a later trial and, you know, is really, I think, establishing potentially a role for this treatment um, in, uh, again, metastatic estrogen-driven breast cancer patients was a trial called Capitello, and it's looking at a drug called Capivacertib, which is spelled C-A-P-I-V-A-S-E-R-T-I-B. Sorry, they're all a mouthful, but I'm just trying to spell them out so that everybody um, can be on the same page. Um, and so this drug, Capivacertib, um, is, a, is an oral drug that inhibits a molecule called AKT, 
Um, and it's, again, a drug that was investigated in this phase three trial um, for patients with metastatic ER positive breast cancer. In a, and it was studied in this trial uh, in addition to the drug fulvestrin. So patients who enrolled on this trial had metastatic ER positive breast cancer. Many of them had already gotten um, a drug called a CDK46 inhibitor. So they had already gotten palbociclib or ribociclib or abemocyclib um, and now we're needing to make a change in their therapy and were randomized to receive fulvestrin with or without this added pill, capivacertib. Um, and uh, it was a, a big trial. There were about 700 patients who participated in the trial. It was a randomized trial, um, and the data looked uh, very exciting for this drug capivacertib. So it did look like in the group of patients um, who had the capivacertib pills added to the fulvestrant, um, they seemed to do even better, um, and their cancer seemed to respond even better in the long term to the regimen than those patients with the fulvestrant alone. Um, and, uh, and so that was obviously an exciting result. Again, we're always trying to do better than the current standard, and it looks like this pill may help us add even more efficacy to the fulvestrant regimen. Um, I will point out an, another important um, piece of information about this trial, which is that it, we know that in about a third of patients who have metastatic ER-positive breast cancer, they have mutations in a gene called PIK3CA, uh, P-I-K-3-C-A, um, and, uh, and that might be an important marker of patients who uh, would have a good response to a medicine like capivacertib. Um, and it, it did look in this trial like patients who had mutations in the PIK3CA gene um, did respond especially well to the capivacertib drug, although it also actually seemed to work um, in patients even who didn't have those alterations. And, you know, I think I'm sort of carving out and uh, making a point to talk about that PIK3CA mutated population because right now we do have another treatment for them, um, which is another effective drug called alpolisib. Um, but the difficulty with alpolisib, if any of you have ever been on it, is that while it's a, definitely an effective drug, it does have a lot of side effects for our patients. Patients can get diabetes while they're on the drug, um, among, among uh, many other things. And so the capivacertib seems to work um, uh, as well among those patients with the PIK3CA mutations, but potentially um, doesn't cause uh, quite as many side effects as the alpolisib drug does. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's always nice to have an effective, but, um, but maybe less toxic, less side effect heavy treatment. So again, that's more in the realm of investigational. These are not, F that's not an FDA approved treatment yet, but certainly the results looked exciting um, and it may become in the next, um, uh, you know, over the next year, another treatment option for our patients with metastatic ER positive breast cancer. Uh, so let me switch gears for the second half of my talk and, um, and mention two other studies in a completely different realm. Um, so the first in the realm of prevention, um, I wanted to touch on a study called the TAM, T-A-M-O-1 study. Um, we saw at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium this year the updated 10-year results of this TAMO one study. So we've seen these results presented before. Um, but it's always very important, as Dr. Laythorpe said, to see how the results mature as time goes on. 
Um, and so in this study, this uh, was a prevention study, essentially. So this study was looking at um, a group of women who did not uh, yet have breast cancer, but had uh, risk factors um, for breast cancer like DCIS or ductal carcinoma in situ or other sort of potential precursors to breast cancer like atypical ductal hyperplasia or LCIS. Um, and was looking at the um, potential uh, role of a low-dose tamoxifen in helping prevent progression um, to uh, breast cancer in those women. Um, and, you know, it's an important study for our patients because we already know that tamoxifen at the full dose, which is 20 milligrams a day, definitely helps prevent breast cancer from happening in women who are at an increased risk of breast cancer. But the full dose of tamoxifen, 20 milligrams a day, um, comes with many side effects for many of our patients. And of course, uh, it would be wonderful if we knew that there could be activity uh, if we were to use tamoxifen at a lower dose. And so in this study, um, which is a relatively small study, so that's an important thing to keep in mind, but a couple hundred patients um, with DCIS or other, again, sort of precursor lesions were randomized to either receive tamoxifen at a low dose of five milligrams a day um, or a placebo. And so the really key thing about this uh, study was, again, the dose of tamoxifen that was used. It was five milligrams a day instead of the typical 20 milligrams a day. So, you know, four times a lower dose, one-fourth of the standard dose. Um, and the patients were taking the tamoxifen five milligrams a day for only three years, so a shorter duration compared to the often the five years that we treat our patients for right now if they're tolerating the drug okay. Um, and, you know, the, the results did look um, promising. It did look like the tamoxifen compared to the placebo, even the low-dose tamoxifen, reduced the likelihood of patients progressing to invasive breast cancer or, um, in the case of the other precursor lesions, progressing to DCIS. Um, and so it was a nice confirmation that there is some um, activity. You know, we do accomplish something when we use tamoxifen even at a lower dose of 5 milligrams a day compared to the standard dose of 20. Um, and it did also look, when they looked at the side effects, like there were fewer side effects, not surprisingly, um, with the 5 milligram a day dose. So that's definitely, you know, promising for the potential biological activity of a lower dose of tamoxifen. Um, but I will say, you know, a couple of caveats since I don't think this is like ready for us to run out and give everybody five milligrams of tamoxifen, um, you know, it's important to say that we still, we haven't compared five milligrams a day of tamoxifen to the standard dose of 20 milligrams a day. So we can't make any comparison between the two doses. We can just say at least five milligrams has some activity um, in these patients who don't yet have a breast cancer, number one. And then, you know, number two, it is again a relatively small study and we have uh, many larger numbers of women in whom we've studied the full dose of tamoxifen, 20 milligrams a day. But, you know, especially for a population of women with something like DCIS who are having trouble with full dose tamoxifen, it gives us a nice option and some reassurance that we can potentially dose reduce and still keep some efficacy of the drug. 
Um, and then the final uh, study that I wanted to talk about, which sort of stands in a class by itself, I'm not sure what heading to put this under, um, was called the positive study. Um, and the positive study was looking at the outcomes, both in terms of pregnancies and in terms of breast cancer, for the subgroup of, of young women who have a diagnosis of early stage um, estrogen-driven breast cancer and then you know, are instructed to take five years at least of an anti-estrogen medication, but want to become pregnant prior to those five years being up, which is an issue that, of course, comes up for a lot of our young patients who have an estrogen-driven breast cancer that, um, you know, among other things, that a breast cancer diagnosis disrupts in your life. Being on an anti-estrogen pill for five years for many women can disrupt their plans um, to get pregnant during that time. And so uh, my colleague, Ann Partridge, who was one of the leaders of this study, was curious uh, and wanted to try to understand for those women who have a diagnosis of an early stage ER positive breast cancer, their doctors instruct them to take five years of an anti-estrogen medication, can they uh, interrupt that anti-estrogen medication uh, for a, a year or two in the midst of the five years and then go back and finish it at the end, um, but, you know, do an interruption to pursue a pregnancy and, you know, does that look safe in terms of their breast cancer outcomes and, and you know, do the, do the, are the women able to get pregnant? Um, and, you know, the data from this trial, which was a pretty small trial, and it's just sort of a description of how these women did. It doesn't definitely tell us the safety of this approach, um, but the data definitely looked reassuring. You know, um, we found that about three-quarters of the women were able to um, get pregnant and have a baby uh, who wanted to, which was um, very encouraging. And then also um, when we compared the breast cancer outcomes of these women who interrupted their treatment um, to other women uh, in other clinical trials who did not interrupt treatment, it looked um, at this point like the outcomes were not compromised by the interruption. And, you know, uh, it, those data definitely need to be followed for many more years in order to continue to see how these women are, are doing. Um, but, you know, preliminarily, this definitely looked promising for uh, those young women with breast cancer who don't want to have to take a full five-plus years of anti-estrogen medication before they decide to get pregnant. Um, so not something that we get to talk about a lot um, in these big, you know, academic conferences, but a really important topic that was great to see, you know, presented and spotlighted. So with that, I'll stop. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wax. That was really outstanding, a uh, stellar presentation. Um, and just covering a lot of really interesting uh, studies, and I think the last slide you mentioned may prompt some questions also from people, giving lots of younger women hope about um, being able to sustain a pregnancy um, while undergoing treatment for cancer. So that was really excellent. So thank you. Thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Samantha Fortune. And uh, Ms. Fortune is Women's Cancers Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and she is an oncology social worker. And she'll be addressing Cancer Care's free services and programs and we'll be giving you information about how to contact Cancer Care. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. 
Thank you, Dr. Messner. As Dr. Messner mentioned, my name is Sam Fortune, and I am the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of our cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling services, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and family impacted by cancer diagnosis, as well as develop programs and initiatives for our women's cancer department. Individuals diagnosed with ERPR or HER2 positive breast cancer may choose to supplement their existing social networks by joining a support group or engaging in counseling. There are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that can be addressed through psychosocial supportive services. Some of these areas include making informed decision making, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, fertility options like we were talking about earlier, and communication with one's medical team. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services as well. Being a member in a support group particularly can offer the opportunity to speak with others who are going through similar experiences as you are, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers several breast cancer support groups online. Our online support group aims to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of empowerment, and provide practical information about your treatment and other resources. Our online support group takes place using a password-protected message board format and are led by our oncology professional social workers who are offered support and guidance. Groups are held like around like 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. You can register for our online support group by going through our cancercare.org website and selecting our services, then support groups. After completing the registration process in our website, members can participate by posting in the group 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals also may experience some like practical or financial concerns throughout your treatment. Please know that if you're encountering such hardships, there are many organizations that may be able to help. Cancer Care offers a resource navigation service, which offers short-term strength-based approach service to both patients and caregivers affected by cancer. Um, one of our trained specialists will work with the person in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning more about the support services we offer at Cancer Care, I encourage you to call our Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a breast cancer diagnosis can impact an individual's, as well as their loved ones. We are here to offer support throughout the experience, and we look forward to hearing from you. It's been such a pleasure to be part of this program. Thank you for your attention. And now I'll turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune. That was really outstanding and a wonderful resource for everybody to, to utilize. So please do take advantage of that, and you'll hear more about that probably during the Q&A you may have questions. We're moving on to our question and answer period. And I'm going to ask um, Regina to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Regina. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question um, for Dr. Lathrop. My normal white blood count and absolute neutrophils is always low due to a stem, past stem cell transplant. I haven't been able to stay on CDK4-6 drugs for very long. With the new drugs mentioned, elacitrant, 
kappa mm-hmm. facetib um, affect my white blood cell, white blood cell count? Um, yeah, so not all CDK4-6 inhibitors affect the blood cell development from the bone marrow the same. Um, abimacyclib tends to be less uh, suppressive of the white blood cells, so that's nice. It has other side effects, but it's less likely to cause uh, the low white blood cell count that was mentioned. The um, alestrozent, which is called a third, it's a selection, selective estrogen receptor downregulator. Those medicines generally don't affect the blood counts, so they um, they would be potentially a, a better tolerated uh, medication in that setting. Um, the PI3 kinase inhibitors also don't qu- cause quite as much suppression of the white blood cells as the CDK4-6 inhibitors do, but they still can a little bit. And again, those medicines right now are only approved for patients who have a mutation um, in the PA3 kinase pathway. So that would be something you'd have to have in order to benefit from that medicine as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, any questions, Dr. Wax? Are there studies that have examined the CHECK2 mutation, triple positive breast cancer, um, and new treatments? CHECK2 mutation, triple positive breast cancer, so ER positive PR positive and HER2 positive? Yeah, I understand it. Triple positive breast cancer, yeah, triple positive breast cancer, yeah. Got it. So in terms of, I I think that's a a great question and brings up, you know, important subgroups of patients with breast cancer. Um, CHECK2 mutations are a type of mutation that um, can uh, cause an increased risk of breast cancer for somebody who carries those mutations. So they don't do so quite as strongly as a mutation in a gene like BRCA1 or BRCA2, the ones we're more used to hearing about. Um, To my knowledge, at this point, we don't have any um, particular uh, drugs that are sort of specialized or targeted to patients with CHECK2 mutations. Um, We do have some drugs that are specifically targeted to patients with BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations. So those drugs are called PARP inhibitors. Um, But we haven't seen um, sort of special or specific activity of those drugs um, in the patients with CHECK2 mutations. So at this point, um, in terms of medications that we use, there's no um, specific um, drug treatments that we use for patients uh, who have a CHECK2 mutation, though it is good to know because it might change how we screen you for future breast cancers and things like that, but it doesn't impact um, the medication treatments that we use. So in terms of um, treating at what a triple positive breast cancer, whether or not the patient has a CHECK2 mutation, for a triple positive breast cancer, that would be a breast cancer that's both sort of fueled by estrogen and fueled by the protein HER2. And so um, we can use a combination of anti-estrogen treatments and anti-HER2 treatments to treat those types of breast cancers. Um, And we'll often also uh, use chemotherapy treatments to treat those types of breast cancers. Um, And so, you you know, there... There's a lot to be said about all of those categories, treatments for anti-estrogen treatments, anti-HER2 treatments, um, but in general, for a triple positive breast cancer, we can sort of 
pull from and expectations to benefit from all of those, uh, and we don't tailor treatment specifically to the CHOP2 mutation. Excellent, thank you. Um, and uh, for Dr. Lethrop, it's a related question, so I'll ask them both because they're kind of similar but different. Should a patient with HER2 METS get a brain MRI? Ask that question first. Um, so somebody who has metastatic disease that's HER2 positive, is the question whether they should um, have screening MRIs of the brain completed uh, is, is how I would interpret that question. So in general, for women with metastatic breast cancer of any type, we do not tend to do MRIs of the brain unless there are symptoms that are concerning for disease that has spread to the brain or the patient has a history of having disease in the brain or the spinal cord. And we are um, doing surveillance to see if those treated brain metastasis are either stable or starting to progress. So that, in general, that is the recommendation. Um, of course, individual patients may have a different discussion with their with their health provider regarding screening for that. And then um, the second part of it: which drugs within the arsenal of her two treatments penetrate the blood-brain barrier? Um, I'm just going to repeat the question, make sure I understand it right. Sure. So, what so what which, treatments? Which, Breast cancer penetrate the blood-brain barrier. For her two um, positive treatment, what drugs? For her two. For her two. Yeah. So in in general, most of our medications do not penetrate the blood-brain barrier. There there are regimens that we know work better for women who have metastatic disease to the brain, which are her two positive. And that is a clinical trial, which is called the HER2-CLIMB trial. And that looks at a medication. Um, we use a combination of three medicines in that case. One is trastuzumab, um, which targets HER2. One is capecitabine, which is an oral chemotherapy medicine. And the other one is a medicine called tucatinib, which is an oral medicine, which is a called a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And that combination does appear to have good penetration into the brain and can actually slow the progression of growth of tumors in the brain for women with metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. So in that group of patients, we preferentially use those medicines because they cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, for women who have had surgery, to remove tumors in the brain, that disrupts the blood-brain barrier, and then sometimes our penetration does increase. What is really nice is that we're actually looking at clinical trials, including more women with metastatic disease to the brain um, by design, which we used to exclude those patients, unfortunately, from clinical trials, and so we didn't have a lot of data. So we're trying to catch up a little bit on that. Um, and it's been a it's been really important push by people designing clinical trials and also the FDA that we really look at at women with metastatic disease of the brain because unfortunately that's tends to be one of the more pressing complications for women who've been um, 
treated for metastatic breast cancer for a long time. Excellent. Um, I have a question for one of our registrants um, for Dr. Wax. I had a lumpectomy in 2019 for stage 2A ER and PR positive, no lymph nodes involved. I was given a KI score of 67, but my oncologist will not explain what that means. Can you tell me what that score means as far as future risk for breast cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, KI67 um, comes up uh, in discussion a lot as a, um, as a biomarker um, or a um, sort of a protein that we study and look at to help us understand how breast cancers might behave. Um, what KI67 is, um, is it's a, it's a protein that can be in breast cancer cells um, that when it's present in high amounts is a marker of cells that are dividing. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of a proxy for more active cancer cells in some case. If more of the cells are dividing, um, then the cancer cells might be um, more active um, and a little bit more worrisome. And so, in general, um, KI67 is a marker of how the cancer cells are dividing and gives us a little bit of an estimate um, of, uh, of how worrisome uh, those cancer cells might be. And then we can use that to sort of individualize how we might treat that breast cancer. Obviously, a breast cancer um, that looks a little more worrisome to us, we're going to match that by being maybe a little bit more comprehensive in the treatments that we take. Um, so in gen that's the general idea behind KI67. Um, there are um, some issues with KI67 measurement for sure, um, and it's not actually a marker that's always looked at at all um, institutions. And I can say, you know, I know that it's used very widely in Europe and it's used actually less widely in the United States, so there's definitely some controversy about it. Um, and the main reason for that is that it's a marker that has to be uh, read out by a pathologist looking at uh, a slide, looking at a slide that has cancer cells on it. Um, um, and we know from decades of studying KI67 that two different pathologists or 10 different pathologists can come to very different conclusions about how much KI67 is present when they look at the same slide. So, um, you know, there's a lot of variability in how it gets read out. That really just depends on sort of the opinion of the person reading it. And that's a big limitation, of course, for any marker that you might want to use to make treatment decisions because, you know, it's hard to know exactly what the truth is if, if a variety of different people would see the marker differently. So that's the big um, limitation of KI-67 and the reason why um, not that much stock is always put in it as a marker um, because we know that, that there can be a lot of variability in how it's read out. So in general, um, you know, it's a marker of, of um, cancers that, um, that might need a little bit more of a comprehensive approach to treatment to bring down risk. Um, but at the same time, it's hard to put too much stock in because of the, uh, the variability of the people uh, who are reading it. So that may be why um, you know, it, it's not being stressed in discussions routinely. You know, it's not something that I typically discuss with a lot of emphasis with my patients either because of those issues. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and we have a few questions for Ms. Fortune. Um, uh, and one is for Ms. Fortune about um, the role of the support group for people 
um, coping with um, with ERPR and HER2 positive breast cancer. If you could talk a little about the groups that we offer and that others may offer on this. Yeah, um, yeah, we have like a couple of support groups um, that are targeted towards breast cancer. Um, I know we. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I know like there's one just general cancer. I know that we have like a young adult group. Um, we also have a women's group. So it's def it's usually I always tell people to read the descriptions and see which one it feels the best for them. And there's a lot of common themes that come across in general, especially like for um, women target groups, including like coping with like the side effects from treatment and then even like view of self and body image and things of that nature. So at least the groups I run, I do aim to focus on how to cope with those various barriers, including like identity and like body image and things of that. Excellent. And um, in terms of just, um, um, just on some of our online groups, if you could comment on that as well. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, um, similar to, like, the online support group, um, what's great about the online support group, you have, like, access to it 24-7, and you can um, post, like, your feelings or your questions, and an oncology social worker monitors it, so they will always provide feedback as well. And then you, what the great opportunity about it is you get to hear from other patients who may be going through similar things, or you even may bring up a question or issues maybe a member may not have brought up, but because you brought that up, that encouraged more people to talk about it. So I really like that platform too, because it gives people that space to express themselves and kind of like in a safe way, if that makes sense. Excellent. And then in terms of our um, financial assistance and co-payment assistance, do you want to say a little bit more about that as well? Yeah, sure. So for copay, um, we have two ways we provide financial assistance. Um, we have copay assistance, which um, targets like medication costs, um, especially like if you're having trouble with like different chemos or things of that nature, that's what our copay covers. And then we also have various um, financial grants. Um, so most of them are targeted towards like transportation, food, um, some home care, some child care costs. The best way to um, determine what grants you're eligible for um, like I was mentioning earlier, you would call our Hope Line. Um, our number is also located on our website at cancercare.org. And one of our oncology social workers will talk with you, we'll do an assessment, and then based on what um, grant you're eligible for, we'll send you an application. And once that application is completed, um, a check would be provided so you can utilize towards like your expenses, especially um, a lot of the patients I talk to, their biggest expense is transportation and gas costs going back and forth to treatment. Excellent. Thank you. I want to thank all our speakers. They've really been, they've been all been phenomenal. And um, I know we have many more questions in queue. Um, and so I want to address those who still have questions in queue. But I just want to thank both our speakers and our participants because our participants asked really great questions. And then we do have many more questions in queue, which I want to address. So for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who are in queue to ask a question, or for those of you who have a question that you haven't yet formulated, I suggest that you all take the information you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best. They have your medical records. And they really can be of enormous help to you as you navigate um, what is your best course to take. So take what you've learned today. It will help to inform your questions better. And ask your questions. And ask your questions of your healthcare team over and over again until you get the answers that you feel confident about, um, and that's, that's really important. Also, in terms of your healthcare team, 
always find out. But, you know, issues always come up in the evening and weekends and holidays. So what I would suggest you do is always know who's on call, who will take your questions after 5 p.m., your particular time zone, um, and who's available on weekends and evenings and holidays. Um, that's really important because I know a lot of people have concerns and questions at that time as well. Um, also, we don't want anyone to leave this call today feeling that you're alone. We want you to know you're now part of a community of support. And in terms of breast cancer support, there's so much out there for people living with all different types of breast cancer. And again, um, our staff, uh, Cancer Care, can, can help. If we don't have the answer to your question or can't provide what you need, um, please um, utilize their recommendations. Also, utilize your healthcare team. Remember, your healthcare team consists not only of your medical team, but also your, oncology, your oncologist, um, your surgeon, or your chemotherapy physician, or your, um, you know, the host of physicians who may be treating you, but also the oncology nurse, oncology social worker, financial navigator, patient navigator, um, all of those people in your institution. So if you're having any financial concerns, bring them up with your healthcare team. Don't feel that you can't do that. Um, so that um, it's really very important. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to wish you all, first of all, a Happy New Year. And I want to also wish you a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.